Well, earlier this year, a baby was born in a New York hospital and uh, like any baby was greatly celebrated, but uh, this baby was no ordinary child because this was the child of two celebrities. Uh, Last name was Carter. First names were Beyonce and Jay-Z, two musicians that some of you have heard of and some of you have not, uh, but that's really beside the point. But uh, as they were born and people celebrated, at the same time, uh, there were complaints Uh, There were complaints in the hospital, and I I ran across an article some time ago. The uh, headline says this, Blue Ivy Carter already getting special treatment. And uh, as you go down and read the article, it says, Hip-hop parents Beyonce and Jay-Z were in lullaby land with their baby girl, Blue Ivy Carter, Sunday. But one new dad was fuming over the velvet rope in the maternity ward that kept him away from his twins. Neil Kulon, 38, of Brooklyn, said the stress of his wife delivering two premature girls was tripled by Beyonce's bodyguards treating Lenox Hill Hospital like an exclusive nightclub. Kulon griped that he's been repeatedly barred from the sixth floor neonatal intensive care unit once for 20 minutes by the superstar couple's private security. He said bodyguards wearing headsets even cleared the sixth floor waiting room, booting his relatives out. Three times they stopped me from entering or exiting the NICU, and it happened once on Friday just because they wanted to use the hallway. Lenox Hill staffers, speaking anonymously, told Daily News that Beyonce and Jay-Z paid $1.3 million to seal off and redecorate a wing at the Upper East Side Hospital in a super strict effort to protect their privacy. Some people were upset, the staffer said. I heard a gentleman say he couldn't go upstairs to see his baby. Kulon scoffed at the double standard treatment. I know they spent $1.3 million. I'm just a contractor from Bed-Stuy, but the treatment we received was not okay. My wife is just terribly upset. She had a C-section. She gave birth to twins. She is sore. Nobody needs this. This is the NICU. Nobody cares if you're a celebrity. Nobody is stargazing. They just want to see their children. To have that circus roll into town and ruin our parade was unpleasant. And now, uh, the hospital, of course, denies that's true, and I'm not one for celebrity gossip, but I have to admit, uh, having had a child in the NICU, when I first read that article, uh, it raised my ire, because those of you who have been there uh, probably agree it's not a place for special treatment, and yet, and yet, most of us don't have too hard a time imagining that it could happen, right? If you have millions of dollars, if you have influence, if you have celebrity, uh, that's the way of the world. We expect it that those who are powerful, those who are wealthy, those who are popular or influential will get favorable treatment over the rest of us mere mortals, right? That's what we expect. You see it when you go to the airport every time you fly on a plane. Last time I flew on an airplane, uh, I'm not a frequent flyer, so it doesn't happen all the time, but I remember sitting at the gate while they called one special group after another to board the plane, right? Platinum elite, gold, silver, first class, business class, special access, everybody until there were about four of us remaining, right? (laughs) At which point they said, everybody else can get on the plane now. And I thought, I'm just glad they let me on, right? Being so low on the totem pole of life, right? And so you see it everywhere that those who have status receive favorable treatment. Those who don't, Do not. That's what we expect. And yet, as we look throughout the scripture, we see that God's values are different from the values of mankind. 
As you look throughout the Old and New Testament, interestingly, you see that it seems that God has a special place in his heart for those who are weak, for those who are vulnerable, for those who lack status. And in fact, God seems to delight in exalting those people who are lowly. And so the values of God don't always mesh. In fact, they often don't mesh with the values of the world. Well, that poses a challenge for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Because we live in tension with the values of our world. Because on the one hand, we are tempted to give favor to those who can provide favor back to us. But on the other hand, we see the heart of God in not showing partiality toward anybody. And so it poses a challenge. And as we've looked through the book of James, if you remember, the key idea as we walk through the book of James is how do I live in keeping with the faith that I profess? Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians, men and women who have believed in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that there are consequences as a believer in Jesus Christ for the way you live. Positive consequences for reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. Negative consequences for not reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. Once you've believed in Jesus, of course, there's nothing that can take away eternal life. But there are consequences here and now in your relationship with God, your relationships with others. There are consequences at that time at which we will all face Jesus Christ in judgment and our deeds will be evaluated. We will either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or we will not. We will receive rewards for our faithfulness or not. And as James talks about these issues, he identifies several areas of practical righteousness in which this church needs to grow. And one of these areas is in demonstrating a love and a heart for those who are weaker, who are vulnerable, who are poor, who cannot help them back. Last week, Brian and Blake, both at each campus, talked about the end of chapter one, where James says, true religion is to care for the widow, to care for the orphan, to care for those who are in need. And so as those who know Jesus Christ, who are filled with the Spirit of God, that's what we're called to do, rather than to reflect simply the values of the world in which we live. That's what James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is going to pick up this week. James is going to pick up this theme of what does it look like to reflect Jesus Christ very practically in our relationships with others. And on the heels of this discussion of true religion, he's now going to talk about favoritism. Do you favor certain people because they are rich or because they are poor? Do you favor certain people because they are popular or not? Do you favor a person because uh, they are attractive or unattractive or perhaps because of their ethnicity or their career or any reason? Is there any reason that a person could walk in this room this morning that you would say, I want to give you more of my time, more of my energy, more of my love because you are favored by the world? And although many of us might say, yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, tempted to favor people because of their wealth. My guess is if you search your heart and your mind, you will find areas in which you'd say these people, this group I identify with, I want to spend time with, I want to care about. And this group I'd just as soon avoid. And if I see this person coming in this morning, I want to give them a hug. If I see this person coming in this morning, I want to back away. Because this person can provide something to me. This person has nothing to offer. And James is going to say that contradicts the character of Jesus Christ. 
And the only solution is by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to submit our hearts, our minds, our bodies to the will of God so that we can love like he loves. That's going to be James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So let's begin. James chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? All right, the first thing that James says is that favoritism categorizes people sinfully. And as he begins in chapter one, he says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of favoritism or partiality. All right, so James is assuming right up front that these are men and women who know Jesus. In order to be inconsistent with your walk with Jesus Christ, you have to actually know him, right? And what James is pointing out is, you know Jesus Christ. You've trusted in him for forgiveness of your sin and eternal life. Don't hold that faith in Jesus Christ simultaneously with an attitude of favoritism toward others. And he throws this little title in here, uh, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, And at first glance, you read that and you think that's an unusual title for the New Testament to describe Jesus, actually, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason James does that, I think, is is to make a point. And it's going to relate to what he's about to talk about, the illustration he's about to give, is that we are tempted to look at the external glory of an individual, their clothes, their status, their wealth, those things that communicate to us that a person is significant and make distinctions. But James, by inserting this title for Jesus, subtly reminds us there's one person who is filled with glory, one person who is full of the significance of God, and it's our Savior. And so if you're going to favor somebody because of glory, favor Jesus Christ. There's also implied here, I think, the story of our Savior, who was born to a poor family in a stable, from a worldly perspective, insignificant. And yet we see in Philippians 2, what? God raised him up and exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. And again, we see this pattern that God seems to delight in taking the lowly and exalting them. So as believers in that Jesus Christ, we're called to reflect God's character. All right, now James provides us a scenario then. He says one guy comes in and he's dressed in fine clothes with a gold ring. Uh, in the Greek language, that, that word fine clothes, it literally means clothes that shine, clothes that are glistening and bright. So here comes a guy and he is shiny. He's got a gold ring on. He's got great clothes on. Now, my guess is that most of you in this room have at least one gold ring, right? I've got two on my finger. One that tells you I'm married, one that tells you I'm a married Aggie, right? And I've got both of these on my finger. Now, in their day and age, Uh, not everybody could afford to wear a gold ring. So a gold ring is a sign of status, a sign of wealth. Not only that, but the guy is wearing shiny clothes. They've been well cleaned. They've been probably well pressed. They are rich, expensive clothes. And it says another guy walks in, a poor man, and he's, he's got on dirty clothes. He hasn't been able to wash them. He probably only has the one outfit that he wears all the time. 
So two people come in the door. And just like in our day, in their day, clothing was a sign of status. Uh, You tend to perhaps judge a person, maybe less so in our day than in theirs, but we do tend to judge people on some level by what they're wearing. If a person is dressed nice, we assume that they either have means or they care about the way they look or they don't. If a person is dressed poorly, if they're dirty, if they're smelly, if their clothes are cheap or have holes in them, we assume the opposite. Uh, yesterday morning, my wife was out of the house for an hour or two, so I was the one that had the task of dressing the children for the day. And uh, my son asked if he could wear his Aggie shirt. And uh, so I said, sure, he's two years old and uh, wants to wear his Aggie shirt. And so I pulled a shirt out of the drawer and I put it on him. And it was an Aggie shirt that he's worn a lot. And so it had a little hole right here. And uh, then I put on some blue flannel shorts, uh, Thomas the Train socks, and red shoes. Right? Uh, I thought he looked great. Just going to tell you the truth. My wife came home. And she took a look at Samuel and she said, he does not look presentable. And I don't want him to leave the house in these clothes. And I said, I thought he looked great. Uh, You weren't here, so I just made some decisions, right? I made executive decisions about what he ought to look like. She said, no, that's not going to do it. Now, what is the conflict here? What she's saying is this, you have dishonored the boy with the way you have dressed him. His external appearance does not reflect his inward glory. It doesn't reflect who he is and the significance and status he ought to have. That's what clothing can do. Uh, I have a co-worker, some of you know B.J. McGeever. He's usually here this morning, but he knew I was going to use him as an illustration, so I think he has fled. Uh, B.J., this is, uh, this is B.J., this is what B.J. looked like when I first got to know him. Uh, typically dressed like this, t-shirt and jeans. Well, at some point in the last year, uh, B.J. took a step up in the world, and now he routinely looks like this, all right? <laughs> And he comes to the office and he has just, I don't know how many uh, outfits like this and I always feel underdressed. This is as dressy as I ever get when I'm here at the office. Now, technically, BJ works for me, all right? But if you saw the two of us on any given day, you wouldn't think so because he outdresses me every day of the week. Clothing, in a sense, communicates status, not only in our day, but in theirs. And so here these two guys come in, and one is dressed very well, the other is dressed very poorly. And James says, here's what you do. You look at the one guy and you say, "Uh, you sit over here in a good place. You sit on the front row where you can see, where you can hear. And you stand over there in the corner. Or sit, literally it says, sit under my footstool. Footstools were pretty low to the ground. I think James is exaggerating a bit for us to say, you give this poor man the worst seat in the house. You tell him to crawl on the floor at your feet or stand in the corner over there and you let the rich guy sit right up front. And in doing so, you've made false distinctions, he says, and become judges with evil motives. Now we say, oh, we would never do that, right? You come in here and you can sit wherever you want, But actually, it wasn't too long ago in the history of our own country that those with wealth were allowed to purchase seats at the front and those without could not. Some of you have heard of the Old North Church. The Old North Church is where Paul Revere went to ring the bell to let everybody know that the British were coming to Boston. Uh, This is from their website. 
describing their pews. They say our pews are called box pews. Now we let visitors sit wherever they would like, but at the time of the revolution, members of the congregation would have had to purchase their pews if they wanted to worship here. Different pews had different prices, the most expensive being the most desirable. Those on the center aisle would have cost significantly more than those on the sides or in the galleries on the second level. Families, as long as they kept up their pew rents, had exclusive use of their pew and would decorate them to their own tastes with fine fabrics and furniture, similar to the bay pew. These decorations and where families sat were indications of a family's social status. Many accounts exist in which a family who arrived late to this country would purchase a back pew, but would reserve a front pew when one opened up, and thus in many ways moved up in society. Which is why, for example, General Thomas Gage, commander of the British forces, had to sit in the far back pew. You get that? If you don't align with my values, if you don't have the means or the resources to be in the front, you get to sit in the back, if we even let you in the door. Now again, we sit here in 2012 and we say, I would never, ever do that. I wouldn't suggest that. And yet... I think each of us is tempted to make distinctions amongst ourselves with evil motives. And the evil motive is those who can give back to me, I'll give them more attention. There is a reason that the wealthy and the celebrities often are surrounded by groups of people that want their time, their attention, that lavish attention on them. In a smaller way, I think we do it day by day. We go to the office and there are some people that we recognize as important and powerful and other people that we recognize as the opposite. And so we give more of our time and attention and love and energy to those who can provide something in return. Perhaps we do it at church when we see a person come in and that person is not as attractive or well-liked or that person has a career that is not as significant in my eyes as my own or has less education or less means. And although we don't outright say, you sit over there, you stand over here, we do move closer to these people and we back away from these. And what James says is, you've made false distinctions among yourselves with evil motives and your motives are to glorify yourself rather than the name of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't belong in the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason it doesn't belong is because it contradicts the very character of God. Look at verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Did they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? All right, this passage is going to take just a little bit of sorting out because on its surface, you read this and you think, so is it saying that God actually is partial to poor people rather than to rich people? Does he love poor people more? Is he saying that they are inherently more virtuous or godly? Well, that wouldn't make sense, right? Because the truth is that a poor person can be as greedy or selfish as a rich person, right? A poor person could also be disbelieving just like a rich person. 
When my wife and I lived in Dallas, when I was going to seminary, uh, we were not wealthy people. We often had a hard time making ends meet at the end of each month. And what I found as I looked around, we lived in an apartment complex where the majority were on the poorer end of the socioeconomic scale. And what I found uh, was that those around me, including myself, we could be just as greedy, just as money grubbing, perhaps even more so than those who had means. And so I would see men and women, young men and women, breaking the law in order to try to get a few extra bucks. And then I would see it in my heart. Often I would go sit down at a computer. We couldn't afford the internet, so I'd go to a computer lab or the library. And I would sit down and I'd find myself going consistently for a while to a website to earn chances to win $10,000. Because I thought, if I could have just $10,000, everything would be solved. And it revealed... And my heart was still greedy. All right, so a poor person can just be as greedy as a rich person. So what is it that James is getting at here when he says God has made the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he's promised to those who love him? Right, it helps, like Blake and Brian did a little bit last week, to get into the culture of that day. The poor were often those who were widows or orphans. Widows whose husband had died could not work the land. If they could not work the land, they would eventually go into debt. They would lose the land. They had no way to support themselves. Same thing with young orphans whose parents were gone. They had no way to support themselves. And so they were deeply, deeply vulnerable. And so often the wealthy in society would move in and take advantage of them to take their land and take what little they had. The courts would oppress and support the wealthy. And so there was this whole class of men and women who were deeply vulnerable, who had no other defender other than God. And so as you look throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly says, you will defend the weak. You will defend the vulnerable if you want to reflect me. And in fact, says God himself will stand up and defend the weak and vulnerable. Now, there are certainly still segments of our own society, perhaps those who are disabled in some serious way, Perhaps those who, for whatever reason, are unable to support themselves. Those who find themselves poor and need a defender. There are also those who are simply considered less important, less significant. And what James says is that those men and women are often rich in faith because they've got no other defender. They've got no other source of trust but to look to God. And ask him to be their defender. Ask him to be their provider. And that's why as you look through scripture, God delights in taking the lowly and exalting them. It's why he takes Joseph from the bottom of a pit and elevates him to be second in command in Egypt. It's why he takes his son from a stable and gives him the name that is above every other name. Because the character of God is gracious. And he lavishes his grace on those who cannot even pretend to earn it. Psalm chapter 82, verses one through four. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God's character is a character that desires to exalt the lowly. 
And the great example of that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Not only that, but when James talks about the kingdom, he's describing a place in which Jesus will reign on the earth. And as Jesus reigns, there will no longer be any poverty. There will no longer be any sickness. There will no longer be any sin. And there will be no partiality. And that's Isaiah chapter 11. His delight, that is the Messiah's delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And the idea is that on that day when God's kingdom is established, he will provide equal opportunity, perfect justice for rich and poor in a society that often puts the rich's interests above the poor. Jesus is going to go like this. Because with God, there is no partiality. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to represent his character, but also provide for the world a taste of what his kingdom looks like. And so the church of Jesus Christ is a community of men and women that say we want to act and live in keeping with the principles of God's kingdom. So the world can see and glorify Jesus Christ. And in that kingdom, Jesus will judge impartially because God made each person in his image. God values each person and wants them to know him. In the congregation James is writing to, the wealthy outside the church were oppressing the Christians. He says then, if you turn around Christians and you oppress the poor, you're agreeing with the enemies of God. I remember when I was in high school, like any high school, there were kids that were popular, there were kids that were not. And I remember one young man, I still remember his name was Scott. And Scott was one of these kids that nobody wanted to be around. He was not physically attractive. He had some mental disabilities. He did not dress well. He often smelled. He had a tough family life. And so it wasn't that people made fun of Scott. It was simply that everybody wanted to avoid Scott. And yet he was also needy at the same time. And so he would regularly approach me and others and say, can you give me a ride home or can you give me a ride to the store? Can you give me a few dollars for whatever reason? He never had enough money for the food he needed. And although in my heart I knew I ought to help him, if I'm honest, at that age, at that stage of life, I didn't have the maturity to move toward him, but often would try to find another route so he wouldn't be near me. Yet I had this friend, my friend's name was Winston, and Winston had trusted Jesus Christ when he was in high school. And I remember each day, Winston would leave through the exit that he knew Scott was going to be at. And he would walk right by him and look him in the eye and say, hi, Scott. And Scott would always say, as he always did, can you give me a ride to Burger King? Can you give me a ride home? And every day, Winston would take Scott into his car, drive him to Burger King, drive him home with no concern for his own reputation, his own time. And often he'd sit in Scott's driveway and talk to him for hours because Scott was lonely. And the irony here is that I was afraid at the time of risking my reputation. And yet when I looked at Winston, you know what I thought? I thought, that's Jesus Christ. That's the character of my Savior. And so what James says is when we move toward those that everybody else backs away from. We represent our Savior. 
We do that in the way that we speak to people. We do that in the time that we spend with people. We do that in the way we use our financial and physical resources to represent the character of Jesus Christ. It's a hard task to do. And the only thing that overcomes favoritism ultimately is the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. The mercy and love of Jesus Christ. That's verses 8 through 13. James says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now James is pointing out a principle that Jesus pointed out when he was here. And that is this, that all of the law and the prophets hang on two commands. One is to love God and the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, that's what Paul reiterates again in Romans chapter 13 that Johnny read for us a few minutes ago. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the law that God gave to his people, to the Jewish people, had a number of commands. It had hundreds of commands. The Pharisees and scribes had codified it into 613 commands and yet Jesus says this and James says it and Paul says it that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up by saying you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus did is he came and he says I've come to fulfill the law. And so by dying and rising again Jesus meets all of the sacrificial demands of the law. Right? He takes our sin upon himself. And then rises again, defeating death and sin. So the sacrificial elements of the law are no longer necessary. But then he also, in living a perfect, blameless life and defeating sin, is afforded the opportunity to provide us the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says the law of the Spirit provides us freedom from the law of sin and death. And so now as believers in Christ, that's what James calls the law of liberty. We are free to live in keeping with God's values. And as believers in Jesus Christ, the spirit lives in us and empowers us to extend the love and mercy of God to those in need, to those who are weak, to those who are vulnerable, rather than demonstrating partiality. And so in order to move toward those who are weak, vulnerable, needy, unpopular, unliked, the way to do that is to move toward our Savior. And to ask him, God, give me your heart. Let me see people through your eyes. Recognizing that one day we will stand before our Savior, as James says, you will be judged. And judgment will be harsh for those who have lacked mercy toward others. But for those who demonstrate mercy, they'll be granted mercy. The second part of James 2 is going to talk more in detail about what that judgment looks like For the Christian. Because it's not a judgment to determine whether you're going to heaven or hell. If you believed in Jesus Christ this morning, you can rest assured your sins are forgiven. You're headed for an eternity with him. 
but we will be judged. That judgment will determine the level to which we reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. That judgment will determine the rewards we receive. That judgment will even on some level determine the course of your life now. And so knowing we face that judgment, we're called to move toward Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, give me the mercy and grace to care for those who have no other defender, to care for those who have no one else to care for them, to care for those that everybody else backs away from, rather than seeing those of status, privilege, popularity walk in and saying, I want to know that person. We treat people as God does, with impartiality. Several years ago, I visited Abraham Lincoln's house in Springfield, Illinois, and I picked up this little book while I was there, The Wit and Wisdom of Abraham Lincoln. And I found a very short story in there this week. It says this, During the Civil War, President Lincoln was besieged with appeals for pardons for soldiers caught in the machinery of military discipline. Such appeals were usually supported by letters from influential people. One day, Lincoln found on his desk a single sheet of paper, an appeal from a soldier without any supporting documents. What? Has this man no friends? exclaimed the president. No, sir, said the adjutant. Not one. Lincoln sighed. Then I will be his friend. I don't know the spiritual state of Abraham Lincoln, but that is representative of the heart of Jesus Christ. Those who have no friends, those who are unpopular, those who are poor, those who are weak. God loves them, so we're called to love them. Maybe that some are in here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ. And the message for you this morning is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is the message of the gospel. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, his character is grace. And so think about this. Part of the reason that Christians are called to extend mercy and grace to those who are weak is because God has extended that mercy and grace to you and me. We are undeserving of his favor. And yet he's given it to us in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, the message this morning for you is that simply by trusting in him, that he died for your sins and rose again to provide you eternal life, you can have it. For those who do know him, we're called to think about our relationships in light of his mercy. To think about all of our relationships in light of his character. Think about those in your dorm, those in your classes, those in your office those at church that we would say others move away from because they make me feel uncomfortable because they have nothing to give, nothing to provide from a worldly standpoint. Those men and women are the men and women that God says as an act of consistency with the character of Jesus Christ, move toward them, spend time with them, listen, Provide for their needs. And don't worry about risking your reputation, your time, your comfort. But instead, think about the glory and the character of Jesus Christ, who extended grace to you when you most needed. Would you pray with me? Father, this passage convicts us to our core because we recognize that all of us in this room are tempted to extend favor 
toward those who can give it back. And yet we see that your character and your heart is to move toward those who are weak, vulnerable, unpopular, unattractive, disliked. To show that you are a God who loves, you are a God who is merciful, and you're a God who's powerful, who can exalt even the lowliest to know you and to serve you. So let us be a church that reflects that as an expression of your grace. We thank you, Father. We recognize this is a supernatural task, and so we need your spirit. And we pray that he would empower us for your service. We thank you, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.